<laughs> well, here we are, Dan. New, new, new podcasting studio. Uh-huh. Uh, we we gone up in the world. Yeah, we got uh, literally. Yeah, yeah, very literally. We're sitting in an attic. I almost made a joke about how we're in like some very nice real estate and. A very expensive part of London, but I don't know what that would be, so I, can't, uh-huh, I don't have enough uh-huh, information uh-huh. to make that joke. <laughs> I mean, there's sort of like, it's not bare brick work, but I can see brick work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's, there's a, some beams. There's some beams. There's definitely one, something there's leaking. There's one that knows this, but Jack likes a good beam. Oh, I love a good beam. Mm. I'm not sure I can actually accurately identify beams, but uh-huh. there's definitely some leakage up here. There's definitely uh, at least part of the ceiling that's falling down, but that doesn't matter. We don't look at that. Um... So if it sounds different, is my point. That's why. Yeah. We've moved. Yeah. Probably d- sounds more echoey. Yeah. Yeah, what are you going to do? Although it's quite a small space, so... Yeah. I don't yeah. know. And it's probably just going to get warmer and warmer and warmer yeah. when we just sit up here. So, so if, if our we takes... just collapse at some point. <laughs> yeah. And our takes get more and more hallucinatory. <laughs> well, Sal, wait a minute. He knew what was, gr- he knew what was good. Um, what I, I took... <laughs> what I took from this week's reading, Dan, is... And we'll, we'll, we'll get to what it is here in a bit. Um... LaSalle, uh, I like the way he dresses. I've, I've heard that he's... He, was he a snappy dresser? I think he was. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And I think... I think I don't know much about LaSalle, but I also know that he once compared himself to, I think, like Martin Luther and maybe Jesus. It was somebody else, but it's like, oh, cool. Okay. Good for you. Okay. And why not? Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. Maybe, um, maybe Marx could have done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, Angles, to Jesus. Yeah, Engels, I am Jesus, by the way. I have 10 pounds. <laughs> um, yeah. We'll get to all that. We'll get to all that. Dan, it's another beautiful day here in England. Uh-huh. How are you? I'm all, I'm all right. Yeah. I'm all right. Might have been the hottest day of the year so far. Yeah. I mean, it's probably nothing. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Mid-70s, perhaps low 80s for our Fahrenheit listeners. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it's beautiful. It's great. Dan just gave me some tomatoes, which I'm very excited about. Yeah. Tomato plants, I should say. Dan yeah. just gave me tomatoes. Um, so you're going to get yeah, put I've to got, good use. I've got tomato plants coming out my ears, so <laughs> quite pleased to give them away. Yeah, I, I kind of am feeling the same way about uh, brassicas, about like cabbages. It's uh-huh. like the seeds are so tiny, you just put a bunch in, and then it's like, what am I going to do with like 50 of these plants? Like, <laughs> you know, what are you gonna well, I'll swap you. Yeah, exactly. I'll bring yeah. you some kale instead. <laughs> oh, I love kale. Um, I'm trying to think if anything important has happened in our last, uh, since our last meeting. Mm. I don't think so, though. Um, I don't know. The world's still going. Yeah, I suppose so. I feel like, um, I sometimes worry that, like, there, there may be new stories that we <laughs> really ought to comment on yeah. just by virtue of the fact that they've happened and it's almost like <laughs> etiquette. Sure. Like if like if something if something really outrageous and egregious is happening as it likely has, like we don't we don't intend to diminish it by not talking about it. Yeah, this isn't that show. Yeah, it's just not a. Oh, kind of, no. We tried being like having pretense to be sort of a current affairs, <laughs> yeah. doing a little bit of current affairs chat at the start. <laughs> we tried that for about five episodes, yeah. then realized yeah. we don't read the news. Yeah. So. <laughs> we gradually stopped paying any attention. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe we could follow some other... I don't even know whether I follow any affairs that aren't current. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I did see that Kamala Harris made a speech that presumably the sole point of the speech was to tell immigrants not to come to America, which is like, okay, cool. Thank you very much, Kamala. Thank you for... Yeah, what are you going to do? America, famously, um, 
found it on Antamagrid Valleys. I mean, I say I said that to be sarcastic, but that's true, I yeah. guess. So what do you <laughs> <know>? <laughs> She's just being true to her brand. Yeah. Um, a history of forced immigration. Yeah, as we learned. Yeah. yeah. Add, go back and listen to Philip Finer episode. Um, yeah, I don't know. I got nothing. I got nothing else. Yeah. There was a period of time when I thought about like preparing for these. <laughs> I know, I thought about good, that too. Good preparation, just at least <laughs> have something to say. Um, but I feel like I've become less and less able to answer the question, how are you? <laughs> I'm fine. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah. Jack, you already asked Stop me. asking. <laughs> Do I, don't I look fine? Because <laughs> I definitely feel fine. <laughs> I, I, yeah, not only do I pay less and less attention to current <laughs> affairs, I kind of pay less and less attention to the sort of affairs that happen in my daily life as yeah. well. So, yeah, um, I'm not really keep a, keeping track of my own life enough to report it. Yeah, getting my vaccine on Friday. First oh, yeah, one, so very cool. I just I booked mine yesterday as well. Uh-huh. Very exciting. Um, I didn't realize there was such a long thing in between both bumps because I'm getting it on next Friday, the first one, and then I got to wait until September to get my next yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been wondering whether there's some advantage in that in the sense that, like, you can have you, you have one now for the summer <laughs> and then you get fully protected mm. at the point when, like, COVID's going to roar back into the oh, world. Oh, yeah. God, Jesus, yeah. yeah I, I don't know whether that's true. I really don't. I, I, yeah. I can't predict the future. <laughs> well, Although, I um. I mean, this this whole thing of between the dist- the distance between vaccinations is very... It keeps changing, right? Initially, they said six weeks, and I thought that had been the case all the way through, and then because they pay no attention to what's going on, obviously. <laughs> and then I found out that they, they moved it all the way up to 12, I think, or 11. I think the recommendation is 12, so they say 11, so that everybody gets it in that 12 period. But um, that was when they realized there was so much protection to be gained by having the first dose. But mm. now that it's possible that this Delta variant is, <laughs> um, is uh, somewhat... Um, immune should we say to Ooh. the effects of the really? first dose i oh. don't know whether they're going to try and close the gap again a bit um hmm. i had heard say that you might be able to rebook it for a closer window but mm. if you booked yours yesterday and you had to wait 12 weeks clearly they yeah. haven't changed that yeah i guess not yeah i i had heard of the delta variant and i think that's a very I don't like the names for the variants. I think they're uh-huh. very silly. Delta variant sounds too cool. It almost sounds like special operations Delta variant. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? One of the variants had to be the beta variant. <laughs> beta variant. Because <laughs> that's why we didn't hear about it. I think it. that might have been the South African variant. So apologies <laughs> to our South African listeners for... Yeah, the beta variant. Yeah. such a cook variant. Of, no, I'm going to I'm gonna have to take that out. Yeah. Well, that implies the existence of an alpha variant yeah. as well. So. Well, what, what, what annoys me is like the alpha variant ought to be <laughs> the first variant of COVID, right? Oh, sure. You would have and thought. Presumably. But it's not. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I think the alpha variant is the, is the one that was discovered in Kent. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. That makes sense. It's our variant, the yeah. alpha variant. All right. Yeah, I'm fine with that. <laughs> I heard heard that there's a this was old news, but I heard that there's a new type of male, which is the Sigma male. Oh, which I think that's quite cool. We've discovered a new male, the Sigma <laughs> male, and apparently it's like head and shoulders beyond the Alpha male. Okay, so there you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'm sort of aware of this. Um, <laughs> this is what happens when you try and talk about current events. <laughs> you start talking about Sigma males. <laughs> I can confirm to the listeners that uh, <laughs> neither of your faithful hosts 
uh, are or have any intention of being Sigma males. Wait a minute. You mean the two guys sitting in an attic <laughs> reading communist theory on a beautiful sunny day? Yeah, sweating. <laughs> They're not Sigma males? All right, Danny. I don't know if I buy that. <laughs> two sweaty <laughs> attic Attic, attic dwellings, attic sweaty dwelling podcast hosts. Marxist. <laughs> I don't know, goblins. <laughs> well, Dan, talking of Sigma males, actually talking of beta males, we're going to talk a little bit of Ferdinand LaSalle today, uh-huh, and we're uh-huh, going to talk uh-huh. a little bit of... Talking uh, about, yeah, Sigma males. Yeah, <laughs> Sigma males. We're talking a little Karl Marx today, because uh-huh. um, ostensibly, you know... Yeah, what do the alphas do, like... Um, the criticize, do. yeah, just just, just <laughs> presume you're right all the time. Yeah, which I think. Yeah, what we've learned is here... Karl Marx is one sassy bitch. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, could you fill us in, Dan? What we read this week. <laughs> um, we have decided to talk this week about Karl Marx's, well, well, Karl Marx's critique of the Gotha program. <laughs> For me, I think the motivation is that. Um, I have so often heard said that um, the answers to certain essential questions of Marxism are in this text. Mm. And so I would like to become the kind of person who is able to say, I mean, you've just got to read the critique of the <laughs> program. Um, so now that I've read it, I can safely say... Yeah. One ought read the critique of the Gotha program. Yeah, and then Google more it, book check. And then... <laughs> And then Google Ferdinand LaSalle. Um, <laughs> oh, God, imagine the guy who would say that. Yeah. <laughs> Just Google Ferdinand LaSalle. <laughs> I mean, the guy who would say that is Ferdinand LaSalle. Yeah, very true. Um, uh, and also, this text is of great relevance to our reading from last week. Hmm. Um, the Fundamental Principles of Communist Production and Distribution. Certain sections of it were quoted at length in that book. Um and certain of the things that we talked about in that episode, we have found some vindication for here. Mm. Obviously, I think we expected to find them. <laughs> um, so we haven't done any great sort of like archival detective work. <laughs> uh, It'd be weird if we didn't find those quotes. We're like, huh, they must have just gotten that wrong. That's yeah. odd. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. What do you, what do you think about um, our decision to read it were we motivated yeah uh, correctly and uh... i was worried i was worried a bit um as one tends to be when they're trying to um i think put forward karl marx's actual ideas and not as they exist in other texts that are much more easily comprehensible um this is easily comprehensible honestly i well okay I think maybe we should frame our initial discussion just a bit in saying, like, what's the point of this document? Because, like, to say, if you don't know, the critique of the Gotha program is exactly that. It's a critique of the Gotha program, which was put forward by, supposed to be kind of like a, um, I'm sure you know definitely a bit more about this than me, the history of it, but just supposed to be kind of like, kumbaya, everybody comes together as socialists, and we uh, put aside our differences and put forward one party platform, and that's what Marx is critiquing here. Um, they all came together in a little town called Gotha, so that's why it's called the Gotha Program. Um, and the document that we read, which is Marx's critique, he basically just goes line by line and just rips it to shreds. Um, and when I say, like, why did we read this, I think the first time through, for me, at least the first time through the first part, it seemed a little pedantic, and it seemed a little bit like splitting hairs, and like, okay, you know, 
we're not trying to form a sect and these people are actually trying to come together and like put all socialists under one large tent, if you will, and make some stuff happen. What was the point in splitting hairs? Um, but I think, I think I've been convinced on my several reads through that like the points that he was making were incredibly important. And you see the things that he was critiquing still haunt social democracy to this day and socialism. Um, and you can really see why he's splitting hairs, I think, at least to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes it does. It does feel very, um, very pedantic, I suppose. <laughs> um, and yeah, certainly, if one were to come to this as I've tried to do in the past and find declarative statements on certain topics, um, you do have to do a little bit of parsing to sort of yeah locate uh, said sort of like uh, Marxist definitive statements on certain certain topics kind of thing yeah. and certain things are referenced in ways which uh could do with fuller um explanation which you don't really get yeah uh, but at the same time as we expected it to do um as, i suppose as we knew that it did extending or leading on from my reading last week it definitely does sort of put put pains put to bed the idea that like Mark said nothing about the politics of communism. Yeah. What a communist society might look like. But yeah, as you were saying, like, um, it's a, it's a, I think initially it was a letter that mm. he wrote. Oh, sure. The, the text that he's critiquing was the founding document for the German Social Democrats. Um, it was a unity document or text between, I think, two factions. I don't really know who the Eisenachers were. Mm. Um, although, um, I know that my understanding is that Karl Liebknecht was allied with them, and I, I guess, um, my what I'm, why interpreting this to be as a kind of like, Marx wrote this to somebody associated with the Eisenachers as kind of like, I don't know whether we say don't sign up to this, but like, <laughs> you know, like this needs some work. Yeah, I do. Um, I do. And then love... in, in, in the end, it was adopted largely without much edit and yeah. it was it was only published by Engels um in 1891 when discussion of a new program what would become the Erfurt program was happening in Germany and therefore Engels uh published this under the new title critique of the Gotha program as a kind of like um contribution to that debate yeah I love the idea <laughs> Of like these people really trying to come together and make something happen and then them being like oh let's send this off to Karl Marx to get his okay and he scripts it to shreds yeah. <laughs> like okay well <laughs> we did our best <laughs> I mean sure, surely by 1875 Karl Marx's temperament must have been known yeah. I, like to, I think of it the other way around like let's right everybody swore to secrecy <laughs> Marx was not win here when yeah. game wind of this kind of thing who sent it to Marx yeah. <laughs> god damn it Agreed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, maybe, yeah. So I think maybe we should just dive into the first, because, yeah, it is exactly what you say. It's it's him just going through basically line by line and being like, this is dumb because, this is dumb because. Um, and to, to, I think, get at the point of, like, why this feels a little pedantic on your first read through, the first, the first part is really, really good because they basically say that labor is the source of all wealth and culture, and since useful labor is only possible in society and through society, the proceeds of labor belong undiminished with equal right to all members of society. Which, like, that does sound good to me, and it does sound like 
pretty much Marxist. Like if I were to hear somebody just saying this at like a pub, I'd be like, well, that guy's a commie. That sounds pretty good to me. But Marx goes through and like pretty, especially this first sentence really rips it to shreds. And you really, you eventually see why he's doing that. And I mean, like, for example, when he says, when he critiques the bit about labor being the source of all wealth and culture, you can kind of see where he's coming from because he basically says, well, it's not just labor. You can't just say that it's labor because there's also uh, nature. And that's something that we discussed in, um, I forget which section, but it's in the first chapter of Capital. And also um, we had this very similar discussion uh, when we talked about John Bellamy Foster's Metabolic Rift. Um, and you can really basically just see kind of like how you can extrapolate a theory of ecology from this. Um, but also it, it is just very practical. Like you need to, you, you can't just go around saying that it's all one thing. It's all this. And I mean, I think a lot of it, I don't know how you feel about this, but I think a lot of it is like Mark saying, okay, you can go around saying this stuff, but if you want to have this be the official party platform, like you have to get your ducks in a row. And his main point is like, these ducks are not in a row here because it's going to get critiqued pretty relentlessly by, you know, people more powerful than Marx, basically. And they're going to go, this doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do wonder whether the concern is like, um, you're you're giving, you're presenting a document, you're presenting your program or your policies in sort of like what feels like a sort of rhetorically appealing manner, mm -hmm. but it does not give you good grounds upon which to found actual politics should you be called upon to yeah. enact it. Um, and I wonder whether there's a, a great degree to which his concern is that like you're, you'd be misleading a workers' movement to tell them this were, these were the things that need to be done kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, there's, there, are, there are many sections in this where like he finds the underlying motivations for why you would choose this piece of terminology over that piece of terminology, why you'd be vague in certain areas and, mm. and less and more clear in others kind of thing. Um, but you're right to say, yeah, that first section is like straight out of the the or is it it's very clearly a very short recapitulation of his sort of use value exchange value mm -hmm. uh distinction and the twofold character of labor uh that we came across in capital um this program was obviously saying that like making this declaration that what useful labor creates wealth which i think this sort of document is kind of like uh, confusing with value and then suggesting that only only on that type of useful labor is only capable only only possible in society and marx is obviously making the point that like labor in all of history has produced useful outcomes you're not saying anything particularly specific about the capitalist mode of production by saying that yeah. like labor produces useful things and also as you say like um he makes the clarification you might as well say that nature is the source of all wealth if you're just talking about wealth in terms of useful things right like and he makes the interesting clarification that basically human labor as um something which creates uh useful products is as much a part of nature as mm. any other of the inputs to um that, that come more directly from nature kind of thing like human labor is part of nature um, so what's be being lost kind of in this document and what I guess he's he's suggesting that ought to be given more uh, focus and be put in more clear terms is like what is specific about capitalism. And a lot of this is like um, a lot of a lot of the 
his his commentary or addendums stem from this kind of like you're not being specific enough about yeah. uh, the specificities of capitalism and uh, the new unique circumstances of capitalism and how they what you will have to do that's equally unique to get out of capitalism i suppose yeah that's a um, very important point it, 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 it feels a little bit like they're trying to say something very declarative almost romantic about labor in general um without that nuance and specificity i suppose yeah he does say toward the end of that section i don't know whether we want to jump to it a little bit that um that it's sort of a, a, a sort of a re restatement recapitulation of some of the sections from the communist manifesto about history being the history of class struggle i suppose he's he he makes the correction that what they ought to say in their political program is that um so society has it has existed in all of its historic forms uh, this is a critique of the kind of like the I think like um, those people writing this document wanted to make bold declarative statements about the relationship between labor and society and the sort of collective that is society kind of thing and therefore wanted to make labor the source of all wealth and culture is the line that they use uh, or useful labor is the source of all wealth and culture uh, and Marx is saying that, well, labor does create wealth and culture, but in class societies, um, the dominant ruling classes have monopolized the wealth and have privileged access by virtue of their privileged access to wealth. They have a privileged access to culture. Uh, and so what's happened in all hitherto existing class societies is that, is that there's been a um, uh, a... The, the working and toiling classes of those societies have been historically deprived of access to uh, the wealth and culture of society. And he's basically saying that, like, um, what they ought to say in this program is that uh, the workers in capitalist society have been put in a privileged historical position to be able to, um, the phrase he uses is, lift that social curse, right? Like, so by missing the sort of specificity of labor under capitalism, you're also losing what seems like the specificity of the role of the working class to uh, change society, I suppose. Yeah. I feel like I've rambled on for quite a long time. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's hard not to. I mean, I, yeah, I think also a main critique that he has is that this is just coming across as, he doesn't say this outright, but it's just coming across as very utopian um, communism. And I mean, like, I don't know. I, I, I do tend to think that like there is a fine line to be drawn when you're like talking to, you know, fellow members of the working class versus like how you're going to put together a party document because like, and honestly, it's all well and good to like tell one of your buddies like the goal of communism is to basically, you know, end that rift and like give you exactly what you put into society. Um, but I think that brings us to like another really important point, which is when they start to talk about the specificities of like getting back what you put in because they basically do just go on to say in the Gotha program, like we're trying to give you exactly what you put in and that's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to get exactly what you put in. And you know, that would again, sound pretty Marxist. That would sound pretty, uh, uh, communisty if you were to just hear somebody say that, but Marx goes on to be much more, I think, realistic, I think. And 
you know, you understand why he's doing that because you don't want to, the main critique that you're going to get if you tell someone you're a socialist or you tell someone you're a communist even is that you're being utopian, is that, you know, there is no other way. There's no alternative. You must do this. You must do that. Oh, you know, you want to have a system with labor vouchers? Oh, that would never work. That's too utopian. And I mean, like, Marx goes on to ground this document, I think, a lot more when he basically talks about um, that phrase, you getting back what you put in, like, undiminished to society, right? And I think that's maybe... What I got the most from from this document, other than the bit at the end about child labor, um, when it, when he kind of critiques that phrase undiminished, right? Um, and it's funny because, like, we haven't gotten to this point, I don't think, in the book from last week's where they actually talk about, like, well, what does undiminished mean when you're kind of trying to organize, like, production and distribution under society? Um, but he goes on in, like, this very short document to, like, make some pretty fantastic points um, if it's okay, I think I'm just going to kind of rattle off some of them yeah, dude, because he basically dude. just says like, you know, you have to understand, he's like, what the proceeds of labor, what the hell does that mean? And diminish, what the hell does that mean? You idiots, you fools, what are you talking about? And so he basically says that a lot of what you put into society is going to be slightly diminished when you get it back at the other end. It's going to be nowhere close to being as diminished as it is now under capitalism, but you got to think about like societal reproduction. So he basically says you have to make deductions for, um, replacing the means of production when things break down or you, know, you just got to look after your stuff. Um, more importantly, I think for you have to make deductions for expansions in productive power, because obviously like that's also a point of communism is to reach our full potential. You have to plan for the future. So like that's if there's like a tidal wave that destroys your town or if you, you know, you think there might be a wildfire or if things break down or if, you know, power outages or whatever, you have to plan for all of that. And then he kind of gets into another section of three things where he says, um, you have to think about the administration of society um, that doesn't belong to production. You have to think about, he doesn't use this word, but you have to basically think about infrastructure. He calls them things that I think that are good for the common good. Um, and you also have to think about basically, again, he doesn't use this word, but you basically have to think about welfare. And that gets into a whole nother point about equality, which I think we'll get to in a bit. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think that when you see Marx do this, this is kind of one of the reasons that I would like like everybody to read this is because you see that it isn't utopian. And, you, you know, you kind of get past what might be uh, construed as Marx's pedanticness. Um, you might be like, okay, Marx, you're just splitting hairs here when he's like, well, what are your proceeds of labor? But it's like, you know, there's a reason he's doing this. Because again, like I said, the main critique of socialism is that it's utopian. And, you know, it would kind of be crazy and if not to say just bourgeois to say that you're going to get exactly what you put in because that's not what this is about. Mm -hmm. It's about the working class. It's not about you. Um, but yeah, I think that's I think that's what I got most from this document. I really loved his critique of just that word, um, undiminished. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's perfect. Mm -hmm. I dug it. Mm -hmm. Clearly he's presenting or he's like sketching out or he's at least suggesting that communism will have to be a functioning system. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Imagine that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's almost trying to give communism positive content, I suppose. What it kind of makes me think of is like bringing it back to our modern age, I suppose, but also thinking about when you're when you're propagandizing ideas and you're writing a program, um, either like then in the nineteenth century or like now in the twenty first kind of thing. Popularizing of popularizing of communism quite quite often today just sort of boils down to sort of like unless if it's not like if it's not actually like socialism disguised as sort of like 
milquetoast social democracy. Yeah. Then it's socialism presented as like uh, almost a, a straight jump to utopianism kind of thing. Yeah. It's it's total abolition of work. It's um, it's from each according to their ability to each according to their need kind yeah. of thing. Um, and it kind of limits your ability to propagandize these ideas because all it really appeals to is like basement dwellers um, <laughs> uh, desirous of UBI yeah. or the idea of like full automation or <laughs> it kind of just appeals to your sort of like um, meme M ML sort of like tankies yeah uh, who just sort of the like... best people <laughs> you're and it gives you as I say like no actual positive content mm. rather than having communism just be a negative system kind of thing in terms of like here are all the things that it will not be kind of thing yeah it gives you some sort of positive things to chew on of here are things that it may actually be mm. and it might turn out that it's not quite as radical as you think it is mm. or at least like you that is impossible it's not as impossible yeah 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 yeah, yeah was that the pulmatic where he was saying that we needed it to be positive or was it uh, was it the other council communists yeah i think maybe there is some discussion in there was some discussion in some sections of the mm. fundamental principles of communist production and distribution about uh giving positive content to just mm. communism yeah um, I, I mean yeah 100 <laughs> percent I mean, it's also funny, too, because, like, you know, you bought up your, like, basic desires of UBI as, like, oh, yeah, I also hate work. It's like, yeah, dude. I've, like, been, I've been this person until very, sure, very recently. Like, sure. I mean, well, that's the thing. It's like, we all hate our jobs. But the point is, like, it isn't that, like, communism is also going to make it so that you're able to do the labor that you now, I'm not going to say that the labor that you want to do, but it's going to make it so that your labor feels much more fulfilling because mm. it's going to get rid of this mystification. It's going to get, you know, you know what you're doing. You know exactly what you're doing to say nothing of all the time it's going to uh, free up for you to do whatever you want. Um, and, you know, what that's going to do to your psyche to just feel a lot better. Uh, Anti-work commies. I don't, I don't know about that. Um, yeah, this is something I'd like to... In future, we... So I've been thinking about it a fair bit, actually, like this distinction between the the abolition of work communists communism mm. as opposed to one which i suppose the argument would be recognizes the uh, almost like inherent aspects to human nature of laboring and um creating society kind of thing yeah um but anyway i think we should talk about that we could talk about yeah. that if we want to but we well, can talk about think... that i'm sure it will come up more as we go into the communist production distribution yeah. book and yeah absolutely i think maybe just one more thing to say on that is like when, when you know what you're doing has a point and you know that, like, you're doing it for the collective good, it's a lot different, like, than the wage labor that you perform now. Because, like, whenever I'm done with work for the day, I'm just like, oh, thank God. You know what I mean? But, like, the other day, for example, I know this is kind of a cringe example, but, like, I went to the allotment to help clear uh, a plot that had been in disarray and it sucked and it was really hard work. But, like, while I was doing it, I was doing it with a bunch of other people who were just volunteering. and It was cool. It was fun, even though it sucked. You know what I mean? The work was tough and you left feeling better about yourself even though you didn't get paid. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I think I think that's just kind of a point. Um, and also I think we should maybe just focus while we're on this part on like this idea of what smells a lot like because basically is like a tax rate. Um, I know that that might seem like a little like, whoa, hang on, taxes in my communist society. But I think when you think about, you know, this distinction between like 
wouldn't it be great to live in a society where I get exactly what I put into it completely undiminished, which Marx kind of makes the point that's a little bit bourgeois to think like that. That's actually kind of not cool of you to think like that versus like this kind of what you might call a commie tax rate that takes out of your, again, not wage, but like what you put in out of your labor for the collective good. Like if you ever come across anybody who's a little kind of put off by that and maybe you're more libertarian friends i would say just kind of point them to the idea of like you get taxed so much already and the vast majority of it goes to things that suck you know what i mean like i think the american defense budget is currently measured in like the trillions which is just a completely unfathomable number like literally you just cannot comprehend that can you imagine like how good it would feel to like Oh, my work went to making that hospital, and that's it. It mm -hmm. didn't go towards, like, murdering people in, you know, every country that America has murdered people mm -hmm. in. It would feel good, mm -hmm. you know. And also to have a direct say over exactly. what proportion Absolutely. of what things went where. Yeah. Which is the, the yeah, I don't know. I was going to quote the kind of like right of disposal over the. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. That's a social right of disposal over the products of social labor. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think it would be cool if we could find something about what that would do potentially to like your psyche. Because I would really like to kind of, I think, read more about that. Because like, I think yeah, you feel I'm worse sure there's than you realize. Yeah, like sociology of work kind of thing, yeah. which talks about like mm. that experience, I suppose. Yeah. Um, anything else to say on the kind of undiminished bits? Um, or anything else you want to um, well, only to kind of transition us into this, this section, which I I think uh, the the immediately next section mm. um, I feel like is really important, but I don't know how well I can <laughs> I can uh, pass out its importance. I suppose. <laughs> um, so obviously, he's like he takes this phrase "undiminished proceeds of labor," um, and then he says, "Well, okay, we've got." we've clearly identified that it is diminished in all of these various ways. But then he, then he goes on to try something, try and say something much more, um, much more fundamental about the nature of labor in the capitalism and the nature of labor under communism. Mm. And he's suggesting that like under capitalism, we as laborers have a direct relationship to our own labor, I suppose. Um, we, we, have ownership over a certain portion of the labor that goes in and we have sort of control and ownership over that labor. Mm. Whereas the types of, well, whereas you, that which is a, basically a virtue, but seems to stem from the types of exchange that happened under capitalism. Mm. Um, but he's basically saying that like, under communism, there would, there would be no individual portions of labor there won't would only be a social stock kind of thing which see which i i i, I sort of feel like it's sort of the crux of his it's so to some extent the crux of his critique of this section a little bit is that like this manifesto is sort of still acknowledging a kind of bourgeois ownership I shouldn't say bourgeois ownership because it, it's a feature of bourgeois society, but it's not a feature of the bourgeoisie. It's a feature of the working class. Um, it's he's he, he he seems to be suggesting this manifesto still acknowledges that um, the working class own in some way their labor power. Mm. Whereas I think what he's suggesting is under communist society, that sort of dynamic wouldn't exist anymore. Um, I mean, it, that kind of that kind of takes us into like a discussion about equality, I think, mm. um, 
which I think is also another really, really, really important part of this. Sure. Um, an equal right, which is like, <laughs> um, I think if you were, you were to kind of maybe, maybe don't, uh, start with this when you're trying to convince people to be socialists, because it could potentially be a little off-putting if you're going in on equal, on e equality and equal rights, because Marx basically just says that equality, such as it exists, an equal application of the law under all people is crazy. It's like, that's, that's insane because you have to, you know, we've talked about this idea before, Marx's idea of equality, which is recognizing inequality. Um, you, yeah, if you're trying to organize a society for the collective good, you have to recognize these um, uh, latent inequalities in humanity. And that kind of ties us back to what he says about this one thing that's going to be diminished from your labor, which is, you know, welfare, looking after people who can't do everything that you can. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's also like, again, it kind of ties us back into this idea of like utopian communism versus the practicality kind of, I think, of Marx, because like... This, this might kind of transition us into a discussion of the state, but he basically says that, like, when you're trying to organize these things, again, you have to recognize these inequalities. And he gives the example of, like, okay, what if you were to give everybody the same thing? Well, one person's married and has a family, one person's single, so they're actually going to wind up being much more rich, right? So it's like recognizing all of these different things. Um, and I think maybe that kind of ties us into, like, a discussion of how LaSalle views the state um, a little bit, because, like... <laughs> I don't know, Marx, uh, I think if you take one thing from this view of, like, uh, one thing from the Gotha program about, like, criticizing these people who wrote the Gotha program, it is that there's a very different view of the state here. Um, and I think that, like, the idea of equal right and, like, how you apply all of those things is maybe, like, taking a bit of a uh, naive view, much as, like, this their view of the state is, I think, a little bit naive as well. Um, and their view of the state, basically Marx starts talking about it because he starts talking about how they view cooperatives and how they view, you know, the, the, uh, uh, how cooperatives are going to basically like bring about socialism with state aid. And Marx basically uses that as a discussion to talk about the class nature of the state. And that's probably not exactly what's going to happen. The state also has class interests. You kind of can't rely on these, uh, in this way. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm kind of talking myself in circles, but it's basically like the connection here is it's Marx feels like they're being very naive when you say that everybody just needs to be equal and we'll have this equal application of, of law on all people versus like uh, the state is, you know, going to help us bring about socialism. Um, you get that like the main critique here is that Marx is like you guys are being perhaps a little bit naive, I think. Ferdinand Lassalle came up quite a lot in the Hal Draper reading that we did in mm. episode 31, but I don't think we actually talked about it very much. He is, in a lot of ways, a socialism from above guy. Mm. Um, one of the things that's incredibly laudable about the character of Lassalle was that he was an amazing... This is this is stuff that I'm kind of getting... It's discussed by um, Lars Lee in the Lenin Rediscovered mm. uh, book, but... Um, Ferdinand Lassalle was an amazing orator and propagandist, um, was sort of fundamental to the early building of a workers' party in um, in Germany. Um, although one of the things that Lars Lee suggests, I think, is that um, by dying when he did, he did the best thing he possibly <laughs> could to his brand. <laughs> Because he died as this sort of incredibly popular sort of like uh, popularizer of these radical ideas. 
but really what was at base what was the basis of his his intention was to um build a movement that could put sufficient power put sufficient pressure upon the state such that socialism would be gifted mm. uh rather than built by the working class and so that's why there's lots of references in this to like um Bismarck because Ferdinand <laughs> because Lassalle was very keen to sort of like woo Bismarck in a lot of ways and that's why there's a lot of sections in this where there's a section in this where um Marx is laying into this program for not recognizing the 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 class identity I mean the existence of a landowning class and how detrimental they were how fundamental they were to the capitalist mode of production and how sort of like how much they were the class enemy of the working class um but of course like Lasalle was quite keen to ally with the sort of traditional uh aristocracy of Germany and so this is why certain of these uh, uh certain of their potential the 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 working class's potential animosity towards certain factions or certain, yeah, certain elements and factions of German class society were overlooked by this document, I suppose. Mm. Um, yeah, and as you say, there's a lot of like, a lot of what you would continue to see later on with like the, the, with the various Bernstein influence forms of revisionism and with the, the, uh, Fabians in Britain and that kind of thing, like this this belief that the state is in somehow it's the state is somehow neutral. I suppose like one of the things you see, they want to do is kind of like free the state. So there's a lot of this a lot of this document is about like uh, freeing the German state because it seems to have some faith in in the fact that in the idea anyway that um, the 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 state would in somehow some way be some neutral arbiter. I suppose when Marx is making the point like. Uh, no, it's a it's a bourgeois state because it exists in bourgeois capitalist society kind of thing. It can mm. it can be no other way. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think I I I think I keep saying this, but like another thing that really clicked for me reading this was like you always hear about whoever said it, either Marx or Engels, talking about the withering away of the state and about how much that idea plays into Marx's critique here of this kind of like idea of like a state that'll just be pressured into helping because it's, you know, ah, wants what's best for the people. Um, I had kind of just always assumed that that was just the basic idea of like, we'll take control of the capitalist state and then we'll do socialist things and the capitalist state will just wither away. But um, yeah, Marx is here saying that that's absolutely not the case. This is going to be a state that's bought into being by the working class and, you know, whatever you want to say about like certain branches of the state actually like staying on after a socialist revolution or whatever, and then eventually withering away. Marx's point there is, isn't so much that like, we'll take the state as it is and it will help us out and it'll all be great and we'll all get along and then we'll eventually just get to socialism. His point is that like, it kind of comes back to what he said about the kind of like, again, about that undiminished uh, uh, kind of section where he was talking about, you know, what you get is what you put in, but not, you know, it is actually going to be diminished in some way when he brings up like the admin costs. He's basically saying that like as you work towards higher communism, the state isn't just going to be this capitalist state that withers away. It's that like there's going to be less and less figuring out of what a socialist slash communist society needs to be. And so that's what's actually going to wither away. It isn't this, you know, like Lasallian idea of like, uh, you know, the capitalist state will just wither away. No, it's like 
when he says it's the state, quote unquote, is going to wither away, it's kind of something completely different. And I don't think I, yeah, I hadn't really ever known that before reading this. I had just kind of always assumed perhaps that uh, maybe there was a little bit of LaSalle and me there. I just kind of always assumed that it was going to be the state that we have now bringing about, maybe not bringing about socialism, but withering away after a revolution. But it is kind of something completely different and more radical, but also more realistic too, so... It's interesting to hear Marx fixate or focus on or talk about briefly something, something again, another thing that doesn't really get explained very well or very much, <laughs> this idea of what a communist state would be. What's really interesting about the, his description of this transition links into so much of what we were saying last week, that it is a transition from one mode of production to another. And you, it's described very much in terms of like a, a transition and not a radical break. In so many different elements of this, whether it's in relation to the state, whether it's in the in relation to um, the conceptions of bourgeois right, whether it's in terms of relationship to labour and how um, how people gain access to uh, consumer goods as a sort of like uh, as a remuneration for the labour that they've done, kind of thing. Uh, in all of these areas, Marx's general conception seems to be that everything will continue to be tainted very much with the lingering remnants of the state from which the new one has emerged, or the, the mode of production has emerged from an old mode of production, the state has emerged from a previous form of state, and you're never going to, uh, you're not going to radically destroy and lose all of these things immediately. And it's it's evidenced in what you were just saying about what Marx says in those sort of like, when he's when he's rattling off the, the list of uh, ways in which the proceeds of labor will be diminished by various things. He's talking about a certain pro proportion of the proceeds of the label will have to go to state administration. A certain portion is going to have to go to um, building uh, what you described as infrastructure, but it's sort of what he, he's talking about hospitals and schools and these kind of things. Um, and he's talking about, Mark suggests that gradually like the certain point, the portion that goes to administration is going to gradually diminish and the portion that goes to collective goods i suppose is going to grow and grow and grow kind of thing um so it's just an example of that sort of like gradual transition from one to the next but i think like what what you often get i don't know what interested i don't know what sense you got from reading it kind of thing i got the impression that this is quite a long drawn out transition kind of thing mm, yeah um yeah. Which, I, which is very much at odds with, I mean, maybe one day we'll have to read State and Revolution. No. <laughs> but I believe, I believe, years. I believe, I believe um, the picture that you get of a transition to communism in this is very different to the kind of like the withering away of the state in State and Revolution, which is something that's for Lenin is going to happen quite rapidly kind of thing. Mm. Whereas for Marx, it seems like He's, he's quite happy to describe lower stage communism and he will give some impressions of what higher stage communism will be, but um, as a form of political program, I suppose, as a, as a form of programmatic thinking, he's much more keen to transition us to lower stage communism. But the same ways that we were singing the praises of the book last week and what that, what that book is trying to achieve, this likewise... Um, is trying to present a, a fundamentally radical enough break to actually constitute 
a legitimate change in mode of production or at least like set yeah. in train a change in mode of production kind of thing. Well, I, th- I think that's it too. I think you're, I think you're hitting it like exactly right. Cause I think it's going to depend if we I mean, if we want to get specific, I think it's going to depend on how quickly you can institute the socially average working hour at, uh, in place of concrete labor and wage labor. Um, because if you can do that, like suddenly the withering away quote unquote of the state doesn't seem so bad because there are going to be all of these benefits to you just not getting a effing wage. But like, I don't know. I think, yeah, I think it would all just depend how quickly you can do that. Yeah. Um, and obviously that's going to be, you know, difficult. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, yeah. Yeah. Mar- Marx, Marx makes very brief reference to the dictatorship of the proletariat in this. Mm. It's in a section when he's, when, when he's, when um, he's critiquing the way this document is conceptualizing the state um the 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 gotha program seems to be suggesting that you can make sort of like gradual modification to the state and have it be one which is um uh amenable to the type of transition that you're looking to implement as a, a sort of socialist party and marx marx is saying that there's going to be a radical break in terms of uh transition of mode of production but there will also be a radical break with politics and that mm. radical break in terms of political operation will be represented by the dictatorship of the proletariat um he doesn't talk at great length about what that means <laughs> um and i'm looking forward to getting to the sections in the fundamental principles of communist production and distribution where they talk about the the how the concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat features under their conception of a transition mm-hmm. because i'm i would imagine it I would I imagine it's going to have some bearing on what you were just saying about how quickly you can implement that transition, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of politics and transition of the type of politics are you going to need to be able to implement or get enough consent for an implementation of a uh, system of production based on uh, labour time? Mm. Also, it's a system of wages based on labour time credits and labour time yeah. tokens or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also, like, this is kind of another point that he makes, but about, like, whether that will happen in a nation, in a little tiny city, or globally. Because, like, obviously, when we talk about, like, bringing on low communism, as if we say the basis for low communism is bringing on the socially average working hour in place of wage labor, uh, that's a pretty big ask. And it's But it seems like that's going to have to be global, at least in some sense. I mean, like... Marx doesn't bring it up here in one of his like six things that makes your wages or not wages, but your um, what you get back from society diminished. Um, but I mean, defense is also probably going to have to be won for at least like a little while. Um, but it's also interesting. I, I don't know. What did you make of the bits where they were talking about like um, the Gotha program basically just says, I think at one point, I don't want to misquote it, but it basically just says that like um, this revolution is going to take place within the bounds of the bourgeois state first and then we'll get to um international communism um i mean what did you make of that because that to me like i th- i think i just didn't really understand what marx was saying because that was the most like maybe splitting hairs thing because obviously i understand that marx is saying that like the ver- like just by virtue of capitalist uh production being so international and being especially the german market he was like oh my god you guys like the german market is like right now one of the most international things so intertwined with everybody else's markets and whatnot um but, I th- yeah, I don't know. I don't think I really kind of understood the difference that he was saying. I mean, I think what... Because he kind of... Doesn't he just say that, like, yeah, it's going to take place kind of within these borders if it has to, but it's also, like, if we want a successful revolution, it has to be international? 
I think that's basically just what he was saying. Yeah, I got the impression what he was saying was he thought they were in some ways limiting the scope mm. of what their aspirations were. Like, I, like to recognize that you are attempting to act politically within the boundaries of a certain polity, um, I guess that... I'm just um, riffing, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that has a bearing on what you're able to do. But yeah, you're quite right to say. I mean, I have nothing more to add than mm. what you just said, really, that um, capitalism is a global system. Um, and I suppose you have to factor that into account. But also, like, I guess you have to think about the how your political actions will have consequences within a chain of supply that extends beyond your borders as well, kind of thing. Like... Mm. Um, I think I guess I'm thinking more in terms of like political actions that are strikes and revolutions more than like uh, uh, electoral victories, I suppose. But like by virtue of the fact that you are a worker working in a global supply chain, your reach is in some ways global, I suppose. Hmm. Uh, that's I just, guess so. That's just speculation on my part. <laughs> I, don't really know. I mean, yeah, or it might just be the practicality of like. Yeah, okay, good luck. You know mm. what I mean? Like, if this just happens in Germany, like, okay, yeah. Yeah, luck. I mean, I'm... Um, there are certain things that have, 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 have never sat particularly well with me. Certain sort of truisms kind of thing. One is the sense that socialism or communism are, is only possible when capitalism gets to a certain... Mm. Uh, advances to a certain point where it's developed the productive apparatuses enough kind of thing. Uh, which is a very kind of like technological determinist way of looking at social change, right? I mean, it's also accelerationist. Almost, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and what's nice about the, the 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 text, the fundamental principles of communist production and distribution, and in some ways what's being presented in this as well, is you get the sense that you could implement a socialist or communist, the beginnings of a, so a transition to socialism or communism at any point in history. Yeah. Well, I guess in the history of capitalism, I guess the, the the achievement of capitalism, as we heard about in last week's reading, was kind of just that it's socialized production kind of thing. Mm. But beyond that point, it doesn't actually have to develop the technology to any particular point, I don't believe. Yeah. And at the same so and as an extension of that, what were we just talking about? Um, God, I just talk, I talked for too long and then I forget <laughs> what my the the other point was going to be. Um, you know, go on, say what you were going to say. Well, to that, yeah. I mean, I think I think all I was going to say was just that, like, we bought this up in a really early episode, but, like, you know, we can't believe exactly what you're saying because it's, like, if we believe that we've had the productive power to, like, make a good life for everybody on the planet for, like, an extremely long time, um, then it doesn't, that doesn't really hold that we need to wait for uh, the productive powers, I think, to mm. really get to a certain mm. point. And mm. also, like, um, what was I going to say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's the heat is getting to us. It is the goddamn heat. It is hot in here. And there's no draft. Um, I remember what I was going to say. Well, then I'll remember <laughs> what I was going to say. So you go. Uh, so I was saying that I felt uncomfortable with the idea that socialism or communism couldn't happy at, happen at happy. <laughs> couldn't happen at any point in the history of, of, uh, of uh, capitalist society. But the other thing that's never sat very well with me is this idea that you have to transition globally. Yeah. Um, I mean, capitalism started in a small location and then expanded. Mm. Um, now there are different, diff there are differences between 
capitalism and communism necessarily. Um, it, it's not necessarily the case that communism is going to be out be able to outcompete capitalism in the way that capitalism was able to outcompete feudalism. Um, and you certainly need to be able to have a sufficiently large to capture in your socialist society a sufficiently large and varied number of types of production, I suppose, to be able to meet all the social needs of the people living in your society. Um, but I don't know whether that needs to be global, whether that needs to be continent wide, whether you could yeah. you could institute a sort of you could have a na a national economy that could be communist. Mm. Um, and I guess the question is like, how is capitalism going to react to that, and whether it would quash it before it's able to grow? Um, Mm. But I don't know what. Yeah, I don't know whether. I don't know whether anything you were saying before implied. Or was contrary to that idea that yeah. it has to be communism has to be instigated globally, kind of thing. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess that's I've, just. I've ideally. always, I've always, yeah, I've always, yeah, I've always. Uh, the idea of socialism in one country has certain like uh, triggers certain people's mm. uh, people on an ideological level, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I don't know whether it's an impossibility or something mm. that would be worth thinking about in the future, I suppose. Well, I think you bring up, you're kind of leading towards a really good point, which is like, if we look at any change in the mode of production, like point to one that's been planned. You know what I mean? Because like, if we go back to the Ellen Meeks in the Wood, um, it's that point in the episode. It's like, it was very clearly not planned. In fact, it was the opposite. They didn't want this to happen. It was just trying to maintain the status quo to a certain extent. Um so, I mean, like, I don't know if the idea of, like, a communist revolution needing to be global necessarily follows that, like, it has to be planned. Um, but it certainly seems like it does. And I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think some serious thinking needs to be done about how um, these freaks, these capitalists could potentially... Well, now I'm going to sound like a, a socialism from above guy. But it's like, how how can we as a society, like... If we're using the model of like Ellen Meeksons would transition to capitalism as a guide, like how can we make it so that our social relations change so that we're able to get to this point of like instituting the socially average working hour? Um, mm -hmm. Maybe Elon Musk will just well, do that, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's the AI, right? <laughs> like Grimes and her AI. Will fix Grimes! <laughs> An XAE or whatever his name is. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, wait, who was that? Pop culture, folks. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, should we talk about the most important bit? Mm, mm. What's um, the most important bit? Are you going to tell me about child labor? Yes. <laughs> well, I think there's a legitimately important bit that we've kind of glossed over. Oh, okay. Um, I've, I've made some reference to this um, this sense in which communism will emerge from the worm. <laughs> emerge from the womb of the old society kind of thing. Uh. And then he goes on to say, well, like, there is a direct endorsement of... Um, Labor tokens mm. as a potential way to which we which is worthy of mentioning only in the sense of like that's how it correlates that's that that the part of this that, that's being drawn on so heavily in last week's reading is like this this uh, in, tacit endorsement of labor tokens as a potential way of easing this transition mm. and it's worth reiterating that um, Marx is putting that forward as a kind of like this is kind of like wages but it's not the same kind of thing. Um, and then there are similarly he endorses this idea that came from Engels last week where he's talking about 
giving I'm just going to keep using the word remunerate, remunerating people for the labour with a token that entitles them to the same amount of social product, the same portion of the social labour as their individual contribution in labour represents kind of thing. And then he says, here obviously the same principle prevails as that which regulates the exchange of commodities as far as this is exchange of equal values. So basically like... Um, under capitalist society, you are comparing commodities uh, based upon um, some vague representation of the value in which they contain. And under this new mode of production, what he's saying is that you're getting something very almost analogous to that, right? But it's, as we were saying last week, it's a direct representation of um, your labor token is a direct representation of uh of a certain quantity of labor and it buys you a very a, a sort of uh, a unmystified and known quantity of social product kind of thing so like you're overcoming this uh level of mystica mystification that exists in capitalist society and um it's becoming unmystified in this transition so all all, all i really wanted to highlight was the fact that here marx is corroborating something that we came across last week that the transition to a labor token system is very similar and would be recognizable to somebody raised under capitalism it doesn't necessitate some kind of like fundamental change in how human beings imagine their relationship to the world right it but it also is sufficiently radical enough to constitute um and represent a change in the mode of production i suppose yeah um yeah maybe it's so, fair to say that it breeds it breeds that kind of idea in your mind it doesn't like actually like force a like massive reconceptualizing of the world but as you kind of go on and as you kind of like live on it for longer and longer it does kind of breed a reconceptualization of the world yeah yeah anyway should we talk about child labor yeah, my well, god that's all i want to talk about i did wonder what you thought about this bit I was um, skimming it very quickly what yeah. does it say that you if you're going to say you need to abolish like child labor you need to say when it is that uh, children become adults. And... He says. He says in prohibition of child labor in air quotes. He says you need to state the age limit. But then he goes on to say something that's perhaps more controversial because that isn't controversial. He says a general prohibition of child labor is incompatible with the existence of a large scale industry and hence a pious empty wish. Its realization, if it were possible, would be reactionary since. With a strict regulation of working time according to different age groups and other safety measures for the protection of children, an early com combination of productive labor with education is one of the most potent means for the transformation of present day society. I feel like if he was critiquing the paragraph that he just wrote, he would also probably be like, what the hell does other safety measures mean? Because like, obviously he's writing this in a time when in like, you know, New York, they have like kids work in factories because they're just tiny enough to get in the machines and the kid gets his arm ripped off. So that's obviously not what Marx means when he says, but what about we do a little bit of child labor just as a treat? I think the most, <laughs> <laughs> I think the most important bit is right at the end there where he basically says that you need to combine productive labor with education if you really want to have society be transformed. Um, and that's pretty hard to kind of see what the hell he's talking about because it's like, Productive labor, as we experience it, is like alienating and mystifying and brutal and crappy. And it's like, why would you want your kid to get a job earlier than he has to? You know what I mean? But like under a communist society, it is interesting, the idea of like, okay, once you get to a certain point, like see how the world works. You're not going to have to work that much. Um, this is how food gets put on your plate kind of thing. 
and um, this is how you're going to go out into the world and be like a good person. It's interesting because again, he's vague enough to be like, if we do this with safety measures and, you know, in age groups, which is funny because like he critiques them for saying like, we, you need, it's essential to say the age limit. And then he says, according to different age groups. And it's like, all right, like, come on, like, what are you actually talking about? But I think the main point anyway that I wanted to bring up is that really interesting mix of like combination with productive labor. I think, eh, I think it's a good idea. We don't have to have kids in, like, combine harvesters or anything. But, like, I don't know. Kid, you want to come hang out, see how the world works for two hours? Yeah, why not? I think that's cool. Anyway, I'm pro-child labor now. <laughs> <laughs> I had I, I'm... I uh, I uh, had overlooked that paragraph because it's right at the end of the last page and I just wanted it done. And, um, and even when you read it out, I didn't really uh, understand that... Uh, that uh, the first bit I that still was the implication understand. of what he was saying, but with with that interpretation, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, uh-huh. why not? I do. I what I don't but really know it, what he does, means, it, but it does. It does like, I guess the distinction that we have now between like the world of training and education mm. and the world of work is like this sort of like presented as this big divide. You know, um, yeah, absolutely. We are we are trained to make ourselves. Um, employable, I suppose we are. We are educated to increase the value of our labor that we can, the amount that we can gain in wages when we sell our labor. Um, whereas, if you wouldn't, if you didn't exist in a society where people were interested in increasing the value of their labor to a capitalist, mm. how would you go about sort of like? Uh, mediating that introduction to labor and also introducing uh children to how uh social labor system worked mm. um yeah it raises some interesting questions it does i've never really thought about yeah uh, yeah go back and listen to our althusser episode where we listen to althusser take a bong rip and be like guys have you ever noticed that the eight hour was uh, school days um yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's just that's. I think that's perhaps Marx being too big brain for his own good because it's like, holy shit, what would that look like when you're fulfilled by your labor? Yeah, you probably would want to like introduce like younger people to it more because again, it's exactly what you're saying. The school day or whatever wouldn't just be learn how to sit in an office for eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. Um, I also like the last point, which is he critiques where they say we need an effective liability law. <laughs> he just says it should be stated what you mean by effective liability law. Like, right, yeah, another, another he wasn't really didn't want to put any effort into that one. <laughs> yeah, he's like, come on, <laughs> come on, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I I think maybe just to kind of like wrap it up, perhaps is just like to really maybe go back on the importance of a document like this. Because again, like we, you and I were just talking about this before we started recording, AKA normal life. Um, you see shades of this kind of not helpful, non-specific thinking in socialism today. And um, just to be very brief, if everyone had just listened to Marx, it might've turned out differently mm-hmm. by now. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, of yeah. what could be seen as a pedantic critique you really see the value in like why he's doing this. Yeah, I'm I'm gradually coming to the opinion that um, nobody but Marx was a Marxist. <laughs> that would make sense syntactically. <laughs> <laughs> um, did any of Marx's? I've always wondered. I know Marx had kids. Did any of his relatives are they still alive? 
Uh, yeah, you don't you don't hear them popping up, do you? Yeah, you don't. Not as much to hear like like I don't know like uh, some sort of. He just had daughters. He had daughters, didn't he? So I mean, yeah. like the, I think then at least the name will have disappeared. Yeah, but you'd expect someone to be like, "My name's Bob Smith." Sure. Oh, yeah. But my great grandpa that was Karl Marx. Uh huh. I don't know. Maybe not. You'd think. Could be me. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, one day everybody will be related to Karl Marx. <laughs> exactly. And on that day, we will have communism. <laughs> that's high communism. <laughs> um, yeah, I enjoyed this a lot, and uh, I, I I don't know. I hesitate to say everybody just go read it. You should go read it. Everybody go read it. But like. If you were to just point someone towards this who kind of doesn't really know what they're talking about when it comes to socialism, it wouldn't be helpful, I don't think. So I think maybe prime people before you do, and then get them to read this. Yeah. Mm. Have them read the fundamental principles of communist production <laughs> and distribution. Yeah, exactly. Have them listen to our show. <laughs> Have them just be, their brain be rotted, and then, <laughs> and then read this. Yeah, or just like spend a year like, Spamming mum with like uh, Stalinoid mustache memes. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Full of fully automated communism now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Falk. Yeah, Falk. Isn't Falk also a revolutionary group in South America? It could be. The Falk. Fark. Yeah, Fark. Yeah, we're in uh, Colombia. Colombia, yeah. yeah. Fark. Fark, Falk. It's all the same to me, folks. <laughs> Um, all right, it's it's so hot in here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like I'm sweating. Um, anything else to say on Karl Marx's critique of the Gotha program? I feel like we should be doing something because it's like, wow, we actually read some Marx for an episode. But yeah, like, yeah it was good. Oh yeah, for an actual episode, we read some actual Marx. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, was good. good. It's it good. good. I'm very glad. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Maybe back to some fundamental principles next week. Yes, get to that. That book rocks so much. Um, yeah, I don't know. And if there's nothing else, my name's been Jack. I'm going to go have a nice cool drink of water. Yeah, my name's been Dan. I'm going to join him. <laughs> and this has been Ixerry's Statements. We'll see you suckers next time. Bye. <laughs>you heard this episode was music to kill bad people too by king gizzard and the lizard wizard if you like this song you can check it out and much much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com be sure and follow us up on instagram twitter and facebook and if you like what you heard be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion till next time